the importance of living an authentic life and being yourself, um, I think, is, is what I want to impart to the world. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom, and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Coffee Potters, this week we're talking all things inclusion, equality and sport. And our guest is Jason Ball, the 2017 Young Australian of the Year for Victoria. Now, Jason's an LGBTI and mental health advocate and is the current candidate for the seat of Higgins in the federal election. Now, in 2012, Jason came out as being gay, becoming, in doing so, only the second male Aussie rules football player at any level to publicly come out in the national media. What snowballed from there was a movement that Jason has been in pursuit of ever since, a desire to want to transform both grassroots sporting organisations in Australia and national sporting bodies into more inclusive environments for LGBTI Australians, culminating in an organisation Jason now runs called Pride Cup. In this conversation, we're going to talk about the importance of creating inclusive and welcoming environments, the power of people's reactions when they hear information, when people share their stories and the significance of personal stories in changing hearts, minds and attitudes. If you're you're anything like me, there'll be multiple parts of this conversation that leave you reflecting uh, for some time after you listen to it. I hope you really enjoy it. Here's Jason. Well, Jason Ball, thank you so much for making the time to join us on Coffee Pods. I'm so stoked to have you as a guest. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Holly. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I am really blown away by your story and the statement that you've made in really driving a push for equality and fairness, not just in the world of football, but um, more broadly in the community. I want to know where this passion started. Were you an activist from birth? My mum did often ask me when I was walking out of the door, like, what I was going to do that day to try and change the world. Um, I've had an eclectic mix of things that I've been involved in all my life, whether it was making my mum and dad uh, go for walks with me so we could pick up rubbish that was tossed off the side of the street. We grew up in the bush and I loved the natural environment, whether it was forming a blockade um, to stop anti-abortion protesters at the front of abortion clinics, which I did during my time at uni. Wow. Um, I uh, have worked for a research centre in youth mental health, lobbying for more funding uh, and, you know, starting a campaign calling on the AFL to do more to tackle homophobia. I think there's always been a bit of a sense of social justice, um, but I I don't know exactly where it came from, uh, but it's certainly, I think, always been there. And I've sort of gravitated towards those things where I feel like I can make the biggest impact, but sometimes they're quite niche, Mm. Uh, you know, to protesting the Pope's stance against condoms um, in Asia and Africa when he was out here for World Youth Day in 2008. I think that was my first time in the media Mm. because I was like the spokesperson for that rally. So really varied bunch of topics, um, but it, it does come from that natural sense of wanting to make the world a better place. I can imagine debuting in the media, taking on the Pope's a pretty high profile way to, <laughs> to start in the media. Yeah, controversial. That's yeah, sure. well and truly. <laughs> I was never afraid of that. <laughs> so who were you inspired by young? Who did you look up to? But one of the people who, 
who inspired me from a young age was definitely Bob Brown. And as a senator, neither of my parents vote for the Greens, but they sort of had this respect for Bob because it doesn't matter what the issue was. You always knew that he had the courage of his convictions. You knew which way he was going to support on any given issue. He wasn't going to change with, you know, the tide of popular opinion. He was doing what he thought was right. And, uh, you know, he, I guess he was principled in that way and, and wasn't afraid to do things like speak out against the Iraq war at a time when Labor and Liberal weren't, or wasn't afraid to speak up for marriage equality at a time when Labor and Liberal weren't. So that was someone true. He started a lot of these causes early, didn't who, he? Yeah, who yeah. I definitely look up to. So talk to me about footy. How, how big did that loom in life from a young age growing up in country Victoria? Well, when I was born, I was actually named after Jason Dunstall because he had kicked 16 goals in one match, I think, in 87. I was raised in a household that lived and breathed Aussie rules football. The most watched VHS in our house was the 1990 Collingwood Grand Final (laughs) um, that had broken a 32 premiership drought for the Pies. And Dad also had a call of the game on a cassette tape that he would play while he was, like, driving us anywhere in the car or gardening. That amazing goal that Peter Dacos kicks over his head and... It was just that was on repeat. And now I'm, you know, lucky enough as a Collingwood supporter of seeing another another premiership, but also yeah. lost a lost a few grand finals. So I played my first game of Aussie Rules football when I was about six years old. I grew up in a small town called Yarra Glen and I was thrown straight into the under tens mostly to help make make up numbers. So I didn't actually get a kick for the first few years. But as I got older, uh, I got taller and stronger and managed to take home the best and fairest at Yarra Glen playing junior awesome. footy. Uh, by under 16s, I was playing interleague and I got drafted to train with the Eastern Rangers who play in the TSC Cup, which is sort of here in Victoria that where AFL players get drafted from. But I, I made a decision to pull out of the uh, Eastern Rangers. I wanted to go overseas. I did a student exchange, came back to Australia, studying and living in the city. And Yarra Glen, my old club, invited me to come back and continue playing my senior football there, which I was very happy to do because I played junior football with a lot of the guys uh, Mum and Dad would feed me after football practice, which <laughs> is a good deal as a uni student. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there were there were two very distinct phases to my football journey, one being before I came out and one being after. So can I take you that moment? I've read an interview where you said at age 15 you realised you sort of had three alternatives in life. You could live a lie and be miserable, you could come out and live an authentic life, or you could end your life. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about that moment? When I first figured out that I was gay, at the time, I thought that it was the worst possible thing that I could be. Um, at school, people interchangeably use the word gay to mean bad or stupid or dumb or disgusting. And I internalised that. Like, I thought that was me or what other people would think about me. And as an adolescent, you care what other people think about you. Of course you do. You worry about how, if, if you're going to make your parents proud. And so I thought that I was going to disappoint my parents. I thought that my friends would discard me or they'd think I was revolting. And that was so hard. I spent years trying not to be gay. I made a promise that I would never act on these feelings. And so after, you know, that was exhausting for, you know, a couple of years. I can't imagine the people who bottle this up for half of their lives. Um, For me, it it got to the age of 15 where something was going to have to change. Uh, I... I didn't want to live a miserable life, but I knew that coming out, I was risking losing what I had or at least the future that my parents had in mind for me, which was, you know, it's not necessarily homophobic, but it's it's different. And so that was a hard weight to carry. Uh, and, and even getting to the point of contemplating suicide, thinking that it would just be easier to not exist oh, than yes. to have to deal with the shame or the embarrassment that would come from people finding out about my sexuality. And 
I, I was lucky in that, you know, I, I tested the waters. So I, I reached out to a family friend. She was a girl, so I felt like she'd be more comfortable with it. She didn't go to my school, so I felt like a safer bet in case she didn't react well. And I guess I was really lucky in that her reaction was completely positive and fine. And that was the start for me on my journey to self-acceptance and mm. kind of realising that, you know, if I, if I only live one time, like why not do what makes you happy be the person that you are, mm. not worry so much about what other people are going to think about you. Um, but in the end, most people didn't think less of me. You know, um, my friends accepted me, my family accepted me, uh, but but the football club was kind of the one place that I thought that I would never be accepted. Um, it was a very different culture playing yeah. football than anywhere else in my life. And I loved so many aspects of the game, but homophobic language, homophobic behaviour was well, all considered part of the game. You know, if it was coming from over the fence or from the opposition or from my coach or from my teammates, words like faggot and poofta and homo. And so I, while I was comfortable enough to come out in other parts of my life, the football club felt like the one place that I would just never do that. And that really, I think, limited the sort of friendships mm. and bonds that I could have developed with my teammates. Um, it's one thing people who are straight kind of take for granted how much of our, like that, our sexuality is a, is a public thing. Like it's not just about who you have sex with. It's about relationships. It's about family. It's about love. And so I would never get involved in conversations with my teammates about relationships, what I was doing. You just doing avoid it entirely. Yeah, I created a separate Facebook list so that just my teammates wouldn't see photos I was tagged in on Facebook, places wow. I was checked into, what my relationship status was, like all of these things that I was worried that they would find out. And so it took me about 10 years um, in the closet playing football. Living two lives, effectively. You know, yes. one version your, your teammates saw and one version that those that knew the real Jason knew. And so what got you to the point of of sort of feeling comfortable to be able to, you know, because this incredible journey that you've gone on started with having the bravery to come out to your club and then has turned into this incredible um, ripple effect that is Pride Cup, that is your mm -hmm. campaigning through the AFL, which I know meant that that moment of acceptance in your footy club mattered so much, you know, in terms of what that meant for you and, and wanting to replicate that for young people right across this country, which I, I get goosebumps talking about it quite seriously. But talk to us about that moment where you, you told your teammates or your teammates found out. Yeah, so, well, I get credited for the bravery of doing that, but in all seriousness, the heroes of my story, I really think are my teammates and my club at Yarra Glen. Uh, I had made a promise to myself that if I was ever asked about it, that I wouldn't lie. Um, lying hadn't gone so well in the past when it came to making up stories about girls. Firstly, I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> um, and secondly, it's exhausting to yeah, maintain fabricated stories. You know, you get follow-up questions the next week. And, but I would use words like they and them instead of he or she to try and... and partner and yeah, things that were non-specific. Yeah, yeah. To try and get around it, but also be truthful. And mm -hmm. it was hard too. Uh, but... I can remember very clearly the first time that it came up in conversation with one of my teammates. Um, I was 22 years old and we were just in the club rooms after training one night and one of my teammates had broken up with his girlfriend. And because I knew both of them, um, I asked him what had happened and how he was doing. And after a bit of back and forth, he clearly didn't want to talk about it anymore and he put it back onto me and he's like, what about you, Borley? Aren't you seeing someone at the moment? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing someone. And my teammate said, well, what's his name? And oh, wow. my heart started beating really fast. I thought maybe he was testing me or it could be a joke. And I just said, 
his name is James. And my teammate said, well, has he come to any football matches yet? And I said, no, he hasn't. He said, oh, we should bring him down. It'd be really great to meet him. And this was just like a weight had been I lifted can't off even my imagine. shoulders. And, you know, conversations like that kept happening at my football club. It was my teammates sort of reaching out to me um, because after 10 years, there was only so much that I could hide. It turned out one of the guys I went to uni with started playing football with twos and because I was out at university, he just thought that everyone knew and so it kind of got around. Snowball from there. They could then see that I was going out of my way to really hide this or that I was worried what they would think. So they were like, well, we're going to show him that we don't care. And that at that point, like, I'd never felt more part of my football club than mm. I had in my whole life because I could be my whole self. I could talk about anything. I could bring my partner to functions and... I played better as a result. The homophobic language faded from the vocabulary of my teammates. You know, I think it became real to them that that would have a negative impact on me yeah. and they need me to be at my best so that we can win games of football. So what's the logic in that? You know, that was when I reflected on the fact that there are no openly gay male AFL players in the history of our sport. and Which statistically is impossible, you know, in, yeah. in terms of the, the size of the, the playing group. Absolutely. But people don't feel comfortable to be able to come out and own that part of themselves. Exactly. Own and, all themselves, really. And I felt that when I also learned that young people who are same-sex attracted are more likely to contemplate suicide or experience issues with their mental health, that I knew that when I was young and struggling to come to terms with who I was, especially in that macho footy environment. If I had have known of such things as a gay footballer, if I had have known that he could be out to his teammates and that it wouldn't be a big deal, that that would have made a really big difference to me. And so that was my motivation to share my story publicly and, and start that campaign calling on the AFL to do more to tackle homophobia. Did the initial reaction surprise you? I mean, it created a lot of media attention. I didn't think it would get that much media attention. Because if I'm right, did it happen in the week? You just sort of got your team into a grand final and then it sort of came out in the paper the week following. Yeah, so this was sort of all happening in the background and it was it happened at a time when the issue was quite topical because there had been an incident on the field where a player was heard issuing a homophobic slur to another player but he had gotten off on a lot lesser penalty than a racist slur. And so there was a lot of commentary within right. the game about whether or not homophobia is fair game in sledging. And so... We sort of needed to capitalise on the fact that it was a talking point in the football media that, that week. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I wasn't necessarily expecting that we would make the grand final. Like these conversations happened earlier in the final series and then all of a sudden and we teed up an interview in the Sunday Age with Jill Stark, who's an amazing writer. And so we had this sort of ready to go and then we won our final. So that meant that we had uh, a week off and then we were going to be playing the grand final the week after. So we're like, well, we've got a week off, so I'll do it in the week off. Mm-hmm. So that Sunday the article came out. And I thought because I'm just a country footy player and haven't played AFL at the elite level that it wouldn't be a big news story. But in the absence of any elite players talking about this, my story kind of filled that void and we had all four television networks rock wow. up to football practice <laughs> and they wanted to interview me. And the, the photograph that they used in the in the paper was me in the change rooms tying up my footy boots and one of my teammates was also photographed sitting next to me and on the day his mum called him up to say that she was so proud that his photo was in the paper and it wasn't for breaking the law (laughs) Um, it was it was like the way that my teammates responded on this day that I think meant more to me than anything else like when all the tv cameras rocked up like I hadn't briefed them on that happening and they wanted to interview them as well as me 
and you know they hadn't done any media training they weren't ready for questions nor had yeah. I had done any media training but I was so proud and one of my teammates was like yeah no worries boy I'll talk to the press and just like struts out in front of the media scrum and says some of the most perfect cliches you know that I couldn't have written better for him and We've had uh, Sam Mostyn on the podcast before and, and she described, uh, she was talking about the AFL's work um, now with AFLW and gender equality, it, its work around reconciliation and described the a- AFL and sport more generally as sort of the, the silent social worker in this country and the extraordinary change that can happen at the individual and the community level through the vehicle of sport. I mean, you would have seen that with what you've done with Pride Cup. Talk to us about the journey that you've been on there. Yeah, well, I definitely agree that, you know, sport is such a, like so much of our cultural life is viewed through the prism of sport. So many people in Australia, like only consume sport media. You know, they listen to SEN, they watch Fox footy and that's it for them. And mm-hmm. so when these social issues come through sport, that's their um, interaction with it. Um, They're not seeing what's happening in Parliament House. They're watching what's happening on the footy field. And it's the human stories and the social justice issues that do come through sport because it's sport made up of human beings. Mm. And so by if we can get the football world to pivot on an issue, it can bring the population with them, especially in Australia of all places. And so when there was some research that came out uh, called Out on the Fields that showed that my story wasn't an isolated one. It's um, a pretty damning report. Yeah, like 80% of Australians have experienced or witnessed homophobia in sport, whether that's physical or verbal, um, at that most uh, 87% of young gay men and 75% of young gay women who play sport feel like they need to be in the closet. They don't feel comfortable to come out to their teammates, which was the same as my experience. Um, and they even found gay spectators. I think 75% didn't feel safe attending live sporting events. And so on the flip side of that, we know that sport can be a really great thing for a person's health and well-being, you know, whether it's a physical activity or the social aspects that come from playing, especially a team sport. Um, so to feel excluded from sport or to feel like you can't be yourself in the sporting environment just further compounds you know, the negative health outcomes that I mentioned before because you're missing out on all the positive things that come from sport. And so yep. Yara Glenn in 2014, you know, wanted to show support for me and for other people like me in our community. And so that was when they came up with the idea to do the first Pride Cup. So we themed one of our home games around celebrating diversity and inclusion and they wanted to send a message out to players, officials, supporters, just people in the Yardland community that you don't have to choose between being yourselves in the game that you love. And mm. so we painted our 50-metre line rainbow, mm. the international symbol for pride. Uh, we created rainbow jumpers and uh, had a pride cup, presented the winning team, which, of course, is Yarra Glen. <laughs> Naturally. Yeah. The, the whole town of Yarra Glen kind of got involved. Like, it had ripple effects far beyond the sporting field. Mm-hmm. Um, it was in all the local paper, on the front page. Um, the local men's shed created these rainbow panels that were displayed in the re- main street How of Yarra Glen and all the shop windows. We got, you know, national media coverage and the crowd on the day was like four times the size of a normal game of country footy and many of the people who came along were members of the LGBTI community who said that they felt welcome at, for the first time at a country footy match, you know, which for me was so special special and it went on to inspire change at the national level with both AFL and the AFLW now having annual pride games with Sydney and St Kilda, the Western Bulldogs and Carlton 
And, you know, that has then further spurned growth at the grassroots level where this year across Victoria, it was 13 communities who did a Pride Cup. We had our first one on the Gold Coast. We had our first one in Adelaide. Awesome. And these events are just so powerful and they create like ripple effects in their communities. At the start of this year with so many communities wanting to do this and me being only one person and I'm sort of getting phone calls and like, what do we do? How do we do it? It was sort of, you know, we, we knew that more places wanted to do a Pride Cup and, and in order to bring it to them, in order to take this to scale, we had to, we wanted to create a new non-profit organisation that could actually create resources that then communities can access um, to have a streamlined education program that kind of goes hand in hand with the games um, to be able to evaluate the program, to have sort of a, a consistency with branding and message, um, make, making sure that these games are having impact and so... Uh, at the start of the year, I got together with James Olicato, who founded another nonprofit called Proud to Play, which runs sport clinics for LGBTI young people to keep them engaged in sport. And we have, yeah, had an amazing first year. We've, we've raised about 160 grand in seed funding to, right. to kick it off. We have been through two sort of incubator accelerator programs. One was Progress Labs run by the Centre for Australian Progress. The second one, MAP, or the Melbourne Accelerator Program, run by the University of Melbourne. And they have helped us with, you know, creating a, a business plan and a social impact model, helped us with budgets and fundraising and partnerships. And so now we're, you know, having a conversation both at a state level here in Victoria, across government and sporting bodies and corporates uh, about, you know, how we can keep growing this amazing initiative. And what's the big, hairy, audacious goal you've set for yourself? You don't strike me as someone that does things by halves. Where would you like to see it get to? Well, I mean, we want this organisation to be able to help any sporting club at any level in any code to host their own Pride Cup. And so awesome. we've set ourselves a goal to get to 100 Pride Cups happening annually by year three. Wow. So we're, we're already... And where are we at right now? Well, we had uh, about 15 Pride Cups this year. We've okay. got over 30 communities already signed up for next year. So that's a pretty good... Um, first year uh, but you know the year isn't out yet and so and where do people go to sign up those who want to join the the movement where can they go our website pridecup.org.au um, at the end of this month we'll be launching our uh, some online resources like a handbook for pride cup organizers with a step-by-step process of what cool. they've got to do to organize it we'll be launching our online store with our own range of rainbow sporting merchandise um, our education programs that people can sign up to uh, to access so um, yeah, it's been a really big year. We've been working really hard kind of simultaneously trying to help support Pride Cups that are happening, but we're not really resourced to work with them yet, but we're kind of taking all of their learnings and documenting that in a way that can help other communities take it on. Great. Now, I know you put like a, a very positive spin on your experience having coming out, but I'm thinking about the last 15 years of Australian history and I'm going, okay, well, I know you would have met a lot of people who may not have shared that positive and embracing and welcoming view. What have you learned about how to get people to see an issue differently, to, to reconsider perhaps a very strongly held view? Um, how have you changed people's minds or broadened their perspective on things? I think uh, a couple of things. I think the first one is the power of a personal story to kind of get people to emotionally engage on an issue. I think for me, I, I was able to get through to the AFL at a time when no one else had because I had a story mm. about what it was like to be gay and play football. Like up until that point, it was pure, purely theoretical or felt like the LGBTI community trying to impose its agenda on the AFL. But I was part of the football world. I was inside the tent asking for change. And so I think that, uh, you know, through the media and through sharing 
my story, people were able to connect on that human emotional level. Like everyone knows what it's like to feel excluded at some point in their life. And you can get people to sort of feel that then you can build empathy and Mm. get other people to put themselves into your shoes. I think the other thing for me is that most of the time homophobia is kind of accidental. Um, And if you want people to understand the negative impact that it has and to not say homophobic things, then attacking them when they make mistakes or get it wrong is not going to help. Most people, like our psychology is as soon as we get attacked like that we just get defensive we get our guard up we dig our heels in mm. um and so my approach has been much more kind of forgiving um, much more forgiving of people when they're making mistakes and kind of having the the hope that anyone can change their mind on this issue with with if presented with the right story um, and evidence and so my my best example of that was uh i was invited to go on fox footies afl 360 with Mark Robinson, who's the chief football writer of the Herald Sun. And I mentioned that incident about when the player was heritage and homophobic. So he was one of the people who was out saying, what's the big deal? This is political correctness gone mad. And so I was going to go on the show with him. I'd been invited to talk about, I was working with AFL Players Association to launch a social media campaign about challenging homophobic language. And I was like, all right, I'm going to go on here. What approach should I take? with Mark Robinson, should I, you know, attack him? Should I embarrass him? Should I, you know, what should I do? And I went on and I just shared my story of, of what it felt like um, to hear that language and the impact that it had on me as a young person growing mm. up playing football. And, uh, you know, that weekend Mark wrote an op-ed in the Herald Sun about why he was wrong on the issue wow. and how he actually appreciated that I didn't dance on his vulnerability on live television as someone who, you know, hadn't evolved on this issue yet. Um, and how that helped him, just hearing my story and hearing what it was like for me uh, to, to change on that issue. And so I think, you know, I want to bottle that because yeah. if you can get someone like Mark Robinson to change and his words, which are read, read by thousands of people, that, that that's the approach I think that we should be taking. So what I love about that is it's sort of, you know, not only a great way of talking about um, advocating well, but it's also a really great example of listening well, like mm-hmm. suspending judgment long enough to actually hear someone for what they're saying yeah. as opposed to, to kind of keeping yourself in your own echo chamber and going, I'm just going to selectively hear what I want to hear mm-hmm. here. Absolutely. And I think it's all about when you're talking about, say, you know, the use of homophobic language, most people don't intend to cause harm. Most people are not evil people trying to do damage in the world. And so... Uh, it's, but it's important to understand it's not the intention but rather the impact that really matters and people need to sort of get past what their intention was when they're, or say if they were booing Adam Goods, for example, you know, it, it, the intention is not what's important. What matters is the impact and if you can raise people's awareness to that impact then, you know, that can hopefully go away to changing behaviour. And similarly there was an incident where uh, a member of the Western Bulldogs cheer squad uh, said a homophobic slur over the fence um, to a Richmond player and there was a commentary of what should happen to this member should they have a life ban should they be excluded um, should they have a, a year ban or and I was like no bans like let's do education like mm. can I meet with the guy have a coffee with him talk about my story and you know can that be the punishment if you want to call it that and you know I think that was and that was what the Western Bulldogs decided to do and, you know, I had a great coffee with this guy. He hadn't thought about it, which is most examples of homophobia. It's really only like 5% of people who are outwardly, aggressively 
sort of championing an anti-gay agenda. It could be from a religious perspective, but often it's sometimes internalised, you know, feelings about one's own sexuality and they're kind of projecting that onto other people. Most people who are comfortable with their own sexuality, like they don't care. They really don't care. I was reading, uh, I think it was a a Plan International survey of young Australians recently. It came out in the last two months where 0.00% of young Australians wanted to get into politics. So you are very much an anomaly. Um, But you mentioned, you know, our parliament is unrepresentative. I think it's probably the most frequently whinged about topic at the moment, particularly with um, the most recent leadership spill once again. What motivated you to decide that's where I want to go to have impact? Because most people are going, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Well, that was me once upon a time. So I think it was in 2004 when John Howard changed the Marriage Act to explicitly exclude gay people from getting married and was 100% supported by the Labor Party. So I was just like both major parties like you've rejected who I am like it's not me rejecting you like you've rejected me and so I just switched off from politics and wanted nothing to do with it and it wasn't until my eyes were kind of opened to the I guess the power that our parliament has to affect people's lives but also the capacity that there is for change when I was at uni and uh, Adam Bant was running for the seat of Melbourne in 2010 and from the Greens. And all of a sudden there was a lower house contest that wasn't just between Labor and Liberal. There was something a bit different here. We had the contest between Labor and the Greens. And so all of a sudden we had a candidate who supported strong action on climate change when Kevin Rudd had just given up on the greatest moral challenge of our time, you know, back in, um, in those years. And we had a candidate who wanted a more compassionate approach for people seeking asylum who supported marriage equality and they could actually win the seat and that could be a reflection on the values of this area that we live in here in Melbourne and that was so inspiring I was so excited about that and so that was my first foray into politics where I volunteered and handed out how to vote cards and did door knocking and um, that experience where not only did Adam win that seat um, and but because politics is so divided in this country, we had a hung parliament and he shared the balance of power with some independents. And as a result of that, because of our system, he was able to negotiate to get $10 billion invested in renewable energy, the price on carbon, I uh, got dental added to Medicare for kids. And so all of a sudden I was like, just with one person winning one seat in our 150-seat parliament, we've had so much impact and that was when I joined the Greens and I was like, you know, you guys are my team, like, you know, with sport. I was like, you know, here's my membership money. You know, here's you've got a number on a bit of paper. It's all about the numbers. So you can count me as one of yours. And I did not think that I would be a candidate, though, um, <laughs> if I any stretch of the imagination. Well, that happened relatively quickly then. How, yeah, did, how did that come about? Five-year turnaround. Yeah. I, I was sort of focused on forging this new path of advocating for equality and, and tackling homophobia in society. And after a few years of, of doing that, and, you know, we'd seen amazing change, all of a sudden I had a profile in the community um, that I got sort of, I was still on the books as a member of the Greens, and so I got this tap on the shoulder in 2015 from um, Christine Milne at the time, who was the leader of the party, and then, you know, a phone call from Richard Natale, and they're like, you'll be a great candidate if, if you want to be one. The seat that you live in, we think that we can win. Maybe not this election, maybe the one after. Um, and so if you're ready to, you know, go on the public record and talk about other things that you care about, like climate change, like asylum seekers, being a candidate in an election is a really great way to do that. And I didn't necessarily see that winning is necessarily the, the outcome. I mean, for me, the outcome is policy change. 
And if you can put enough pressure on the major parties by challenging seats, and at the end of the day, it's votes that they care about the most. And so holds the feet to the fire, doesn't it? Exactly. So if they're gonna be, if they're gonna lose a seat because the people in this electorate are saying, actually, we care about you know kids in detention, and you know we care about our future and climate change, and if that results in changing policies and so I don't win the seat, that's still a win for me because we've, it doesn't matter what party takes the credit yeah. of getting an issue, what matters is that we get the change. It's a bigger game, isn't it, than, than who it is that's holding I'll the seat or not the title. I'll and go do something else. <laughs> you know, if they want to fix their policies and I don't have to run against them. <laughs> then my problem solved. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jace, in terms of um, your... Like you've packed so much into such a young life and I, I, I know that there is so much more to come. I, like you're someone I could look at and go, you're only just getting started and I'll be watching the outcome at the next federal election with much interest. Uh, what is it that you kind of hold to be one of the most powerful bits of advice that you've been given that's really shaped the way you've made decisions or the way that you've navigated, how you've played the situations and circumstances you've found yourself in today? Well, the biggest advice I think I would give to other people which I've learned is about authenticity and I think that was the biggest thing that I learned as a young person growing up and and there was such a marked difference for me just being myself and how much that improved my life but also how much it had an impact on people around me and how much respect was kind of came from that and so you know when I have the opportunity to speak at high schools and, and the biggest message that I share to young people who might be gay or questioning their sexuality which is often 10% of the audience in a school of 800 people, there's 80 kids in there who are listening to you. And, and for me, I'm going there to try and be the role model that I didn't have when I was a young person in that. And, and I'm offering them a message of hope because if it can be okay in a country footy club, there's mm. hope that it can be okay anywhere. And for most people who are gay, when you talk about that coming out experience, almost universally they wish that they'd done it sooner, you know, because it was such a liberating moment for them. Um, and just that, the importance of living an authentic life and being yourself, um, I think is, is what I want to impart to the world. I love that. I, one of the quotes I saw for the first time and I screenshot it on the weekend was be the adult you needed as a kid. Mm. I thought, wow, that's such an interesting point of self-reflection to go, what, what would it look like if I showed up in that way? Um, and contributed and not just talked to young people but treated others the way that I would have wished um, people had treated me. You know, those 80 kids that are sitting in school, what would I have wished that someone would have stood up in front of me and said? What would I have wished they had done in their reaction when I told them? You know, those sorts of things like that. The, the power that you have in those moments is something I think you've made overwhelmingly clear in this conversation is those things matter and whether it's a smile and a hug or you know whatever that will ripple in such significant ways in terms of shaping the trajectory of um, someone's self-talk someone's life decisions you name it and it was a, an amazing experience the other week I got to go back to my own high school that's awesome and, and speak at assembly and can and not only you know try and be a role model for the kids like me uh, but also to, to share the story of my teammates as the role models for all the straight kids in the audience about how to act, to show that saying no to homophobia doesn't make you less of a man. You know, it means that you're a good bloke. It means that you're sticking up for your mates. Um, and so hopefully, you know, there was a message for, for all of the kids in that audience. One final question I've got before we finish up. We love trying to turn um, ideas into action with Coffee Pods. So if you could leave our listeners with a call to action, what would you like to encourage them to, to go and do after listening to you talk? I think that the biggest thing for me really around the power of 
a personal story to change hearts and minds. I think that American civil rights activist and poet Maya Angelou once said that people will forget what you said, they'll forget what you did, but they'll always remember the way that you made them feel. And so I think when it comes to creating change in the world, like it has to centre around stories and how, you know, all of your listeners can use their own stories and their own experiences, whatever they might be, and leverage that to create the, the change in the world that they want to see, whatever that might look like. Love that call to action and honestly so blown away by you and what you've done and the way that you've chosen to to take your own hardship and the difficulty that you experienced as a teen and pay forward your life's mission in a way that means hopefully far, far less people ever experience, you know, the, the loneliness or the fear or the shame that you talked about. Um, because you're creating this inclusivity and welcomeness and and positivity um, community by community, and I think it's awesome. So thank you for what you do, and good luck with what lies ahead. Thanks for having me, Holly. It was a pleasure and a treat. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organisation, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback, shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.